Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, California voters decide whether to replace their current governor with a right-wing talk show host. A flood-prone Staten Island community fights for its wetlands. And state officials denounce the humanitarian crisis at Rikers Island. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In California, voters head to the polls today in the final day of voting over whether to recall Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. Newsom's most prominent challenger is a right-wing talk show host, Larry Elder, who has vowed to eliminate mask and vaccine mandates in California. This is President Joe Biden speaking at a rally yesterday urging voters to vote no on Newsom's recall. The reason I'm here, and you all are here, is to thank and support our friend, Governor Gavin Newsom. The best governors in the country. California, I'm not sure you know it, but if you didn't know it, you should. The eyes of the nation, this is not hyperbole, the eyes of the nation are on California. Because the decision you're about to make, isn't this going to have, isn't this going to have a huge impact on California? It's going to reverberate around the nation, and quite frankly, not a joke, around the world. One out of eight people in the United States live in California, which would be the world's fifth largest economy if it were its own nation. In Texas, Hurricane Nicholas came ashore last night as a Category 1 storm and is expected to dump as much as a foot of rain in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama in the next couple of days, which could cause heavy flooding. Here in New York, the de Blasio administration says the 46-acre East River Park must be demolished to build an 8- to 10-foot flood barrier to prevent future storms from swamping the Lower East Side. Local residents say cutting down nearly 1,000 mature trees is ecocide. Yesterday, nervous park defenders sprang into action at the site of what appeared to be the first fresh tree stump in the park. This is Eileen Miles of East River Park Action. Well, yesterday, one of our members um, spotted a tree stump down at the northern end of the park, which looked like a fresh cut tree. You know, and there was an assembly of trucks there and construction. We took this to mean that this is the beginning of um the city's assault on the park in the beginning of cutting down 991 trees. So what we, we used it as an alarm. We started to gather there at noon, and we stayed there till the mid-afternoon. It started to be clear that the tree, in, in fact, had not been cut in the morning. Yesterday on Staten Island, a group of residents who have been fighting to save the Graniteville wetlands from a massive development rallied at Borough Hall and marched to the offices of Council Member Debbie Rose and State Senator Diane Savino. The site of the development, which is to include a giant BJ's wholesale club, a gas station, and an 835 car parking lot and other buildings, is located in the diverse, predominantly working class northwestern tip of Staten Island. Construction work began in early July, and residents say that the extreme flooding they experienced two months later when Hurricane Ida passed through is a direct result of the loss of over 1,400 mature trees that were cut down over the summer. This is a local resident speaking at yesterday's rally. We've been warning many people, including including council member Debbie Rose. We have been warning them for four years that if we lose the wetland, we will be flooded. They started cutting down the trees in July, beginning of July, and compacting the land. On September 
first we were flooded, less than two months later. That's why we told you so. People were putting their belongings out on the street. There was at least one house on South Avenue that was flooded. I saw them pumping the water out of their home. And finally, a delegation of 11 elected officials visited Rikers Island yesterday morning. They reported current conditions on Rikers are more dangerous than ever, constituting a humanitarian crisis. The jails there are overcrowded with a population that has surged to more than 6,000 people above pre-pandemic levels. The refusal of thousands of correction officers to show up to work has left incarcerated people without adequate food, medical attention, or access to other basic services that the city is legally and ethically required to provide. These violations are manifesting in a wave of violence and death on Rikers. Nine people have died in Department of Corrections custody this year and three on Rikers in the past month. This is Congressman Jamal Bowman, who was one of the visiting elected officials speaking after the visit. We need new facilities. We need a new mindset and we need to take a mental health approach and a behavioral health approach. There are many people in there who are there because of technical parole violations, other technicalities that should not be in there. And they need to be Mm -hmm. decarcerated as quickly as possible. We'll be back with our first guest after this short break. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto. Me dio dos luceros que cuando los abro perfecto distingo lo negro del blanco was Gracias a la Vida, performed by Chilean folk singer Violeta Parra. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper newspaper and website. Uh, you can find us on independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. It's great to be with you here today on WBAI Radio, and I'm joined by my colleague, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John, and hello to all our listeners on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Happy to be here with you today. Yes, and for our first segment today, we're going to talk about Occupy Wall Street. Its uh, 10th anniversary is coming up later this week. It was 10 years ago this week. 
that people uh, started an encampment at Zuccotti Park down in uh, lower Manhattan, uh, just up the street from Wall Street, and were there for almost two months and made a huge impact uh, on the city and on the country and how we see economic inequality, the 1%, the 99%, and and so much more. Um, Our first guest should uh, be joining us shortly. Um, while we wait, uh, while we wait for Pris- Priscilla Grimm to join us, uh, Amba, uh, I was just going to point out, uh, you know, we have a, a new issue of the Independent, a new issue of the Independent that will uh, hit the streets later this week, and a big part of what we focus on there as well is the tenth anniversary of, of Occupy. Um, you know, it's such a huge impact it it had, especially on the left in the United States. It's really hard to overstate how uh, demoralized and, and um, just, yeah, demoralized and uh, um, uh, lifeless the, the left was in, in 2011 uh, before Occupy hit. A lot of people were waiting for Barack Obama to do something uh, magical and awesome, um, and that just was not going to happen. It was pretty clear by year three of his administration. And a lot of people knew what the problems were. I mean, Wall Street had just ripped off the country for hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in, uh, in a bailout uh, for their uh, bad behavior. And, and there was no accountability. No one went to jail for all the crimes they committed. And uh, and it finally, it took these uh, mostly young people uh, putting their, you know, sleeping bags or some in some cases, just their uh, cardboard boxes on the, on the, pavement at Zuccotti Park and, and, and saying, you know, this is unacceptable. We are the 99%. We're tired of getting ripped off by the 1%. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, that battle cry resonated with so many people and, and uh, who recognized the, the truth in it. And um, I'm curious how you look back on it. Well, I was just going to say, it's interesting because I think generally we remember Occupy Wall Street, the occupation of of Wall Street in New York City, but the ripple effect was really amazing. I mean, I was 15 living in North Carolina, and that was certainly the first time that, I don't know, I think probably even capitalism was brought to my attention. But I remember people camping out for weeks at the city hall in, at the city hall in, in, in North, in Asheville, North Carolina, and, and at city halls all around the country. That's something that really sticks with me. It was a radicalizing moment for sure. I was like, why are they out there? You know? Um, but I'm curious about a anecdote or memory you have from, you know, the big encampment here, which was definitely far more interesting. Yeah. The, the energy there was the energy there, you know, it's 24, sorry, it was 24 seven. And, uh, you know, people were out in the streets protesting uh, every day. And actually twice a day, they would go down to this New York Stock Exchange uh, for both the opening and the closing of the stock exchange and be down there, you know, chanting all all day, all night, all week, uh, Occupy Wall Street. But what really made Occupy uh, take off in a way, it might not have happened the same way without a big assist from the New York Police Department. Um, it was there. Hello? Yeah. Hello. So it was their their uh, sort of random brutality that uh, really helped draw attention and, and, and public sympathy to Occupy in its uh, early weeks when a lot of people weren't really yet 
focused on it. And uh, in, in particular, there were two incidents, one in, involving a, a deputy inspector uh, who had almost 30 years on the force uh, named uh, Anthony Baloney, uh, a.k.a. Tony Baloney, who uh, um, came up to these two young women who were trapped behind an orange net at, at the end of a protest. And he just pulled out his uh, pepper spray and blasted them in the face. And they were, you know, screaming in pain. And this was all captured on on cell phone video and quickly went viral on you know Facebook and Twitter and then the you know the conventional media picked it up and, and um, you know we saw a situation where you know the tears of these two young women were you know far more powerful than the brute force of uh, the NYPD and and, and they had uh, some explaining to do and it, it brought a lot of sympathy and of course a week later there was the mass arrest of 700 people on the Brooklyn Bridge and again it really just sort of focus people like what's going on here why are why is this happening and um it created a huge opening where where the media started to pay more attention and then their message was resonating and then here in new york uh the labor unions got behind occupy in a big way they saw that occupy was breaking through in a uh, on these issues of economic inequality in a way that all their sort of more cautious conventional messaging had failed for years and they saw that Again, these kids camped out in a park were were breaking through with this, you know, discourse about the one percent and ninety nine percent. So they got it behind it in a big way. You had demonstrations with as many as thirty thousand people, and many of them were, uh, you know, labor unionists. Um, and, and then also the labor unions, you know, provided storage space for supplies, they uh, extra meeting space. You know, when the park became completely overrun with people. And the, so the unions helped out in, in a big way. And it was it was a great alliance to see, again, you know, uh, two groups that kind of come from cult, you know, sort of culturally different spheres, the sort of the more sort of countercultural vibe uh, around Occupy and then these labor unions, which are big institutions here in New York. And, and they made a, a common cause and it was it was a really powerful partnership. And it also gave Occupy not only like a certain mainstream credibility here in New York, but it was another thing that put a, you know, our billionaire mayor, Michael Bloomberg on his back foot, because it's one thing to say you're to try to crack down on a bunch of crack to crack down on a bunch of kids in a park. It's another thing when you're, you have these massive labor unions, these, I'm sorry. We're having a little bit of a live radio moment here. Um, but I think I got my uh, microphone back together. Uh, sound, we're we're still great. waiting for uh, Priscilla Grimm uh, from Occupy Wall Street to to join us, uh, hopefully any moment now. But, yeah, it's interesting to think back uh, about what happened. And, um, you know, I think one thing that had the NYPD, they, they had pretty effortlessly repressed protests uh, for years uh, before Occupy. Um, uh, during the Bloomberg era, during the Iraq war protests, the Republican National Convention in 2004, other uh, things like the critical mass bike rides. But they were not prepared for the some of the changes in technology that had occurred in the changes in technology that had occurred in the in the years before 2011 with with the development of with the development of social media the development of the development of live streaming all these uh 
media tools that that gave Occupy the ability uh, to directly reach m- millions of people who could tune into what was happening, you know, first at Zuccotti Park and then all these other encampments uh, around the country. And there were, I think, Occupy encampments in more than si- 600 cities and towns and well, studying some of the NYPD's tactics used um, at Occupy um, and then also seeing photos, l- looking over photos uh, for this upcoming coming issue that we just mentioned of, of the NYPD on the Brooklyn Bridge attacking protesters obviously brought back memories from last summer. And um, based on my studies and experience, you know, there's there was hardly any change, if 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 not just amping up between their responses to what happened ten years ago and and what happened last year. Um, yeah, the, the the problem was while they their their sort of uh, brutality backfired on them in in 2011. You know, nobody was held accountable for that. Uh, I mean, Tony Baloney lost ten uh, vacation days and otherwise was allowed to finish out his rec- career a few years later and retire with a big fat pension. Um, and so, yeah, there was no, no accountability, uh, uh, Manhattan district attorney, Cyrus Vance, uh, you know, never challenged the police on, on their conduct. So yeah, certainly when you, you had uh, black lives matter, uh, protests, um, uh, you know, explode, you know, first in 2014 and then, uh, last year after the murder of uh, George Floyd, yes, the police, if anything, were, uh, you know, even uh, more brutal, especially last year when, uh, Obviously, they felt threatened by, by what was happening. Um, but, yeah, the situation in 2011 is they un- unintentionally allowed a lot of uh, public sympathy mm-hmm. uh, and awareness to boomerang uh, back in favor of Occupy at some, at some, at some key moments uh, when Occupy otherwise might have uh, languished and never gotten as, 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 big, as, it, as big as it did. Well, we're still waiting on our on our guest, and uh, I apologize for that. Oh, good. I think we I think uh, we have Priscilla Grimm joining us uh, here. Priscilla, are, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi. All right. Well, this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, thank Priscilla. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, Priscilla was one of the editors of the Occupy Wall Street journal uh, during Occupy, uh, a sister publication that we were uh, good friends with and um, has stayed involved with various uh, Occupy-related formations, various Occupy-related formations uh, since then. Uh, So uh, just for starters, uh, Priscilla, can can you uh, fill us in on what uh, different Occupy groups and Occupy influence groups are doing around the 10th anniversary, which will kick off later this week? Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, people who are involved with the Occupy movement across the United States and maybe worldwide, I'm not sure if they'll be uh, joining in the celebrations, but um, definitely in New York and Los Angeles, we're going to have um, events around uh, our various uh, anniversaries. And it, it's really just people gathering back at Zuccotti Park and, you know, back at the stock exchange to remind them that, you know, we're still here. Um, and also just to, for the audience to understand, you know, a lot of the other Occupy Wall Street encampments that happened around the U.S., the encampments that were destroyed by the federal government, 
<clears throat> um, you know, they grew starting um, at the end of September into mid-October and just kept going from there. So really what we're doing is we're going into a month of celebration to look back at a lot of the achievements that we've gotten. I mean, you know, Fight for 15 was kind of just a dream when Occupy Wall Street happened. And now over 74 jurisdictions, including cities, counties, and states, have all raised their minimum wages, many of them to $15 an hour or more at this point. So um, we have a lot of things to be thankful for. Um, you know, it, you know, changing both public opinion and the actual realities of what we, the people, um, can receive from our government in the sense of support has really drastically changed uh, since 2011. Um, it may not seem like a lot, but it's a lot more than we got 20 years prior. So really looking forward to um, meeting minds in the streets and talking about those achievements. And, and talk a little bit more about what organizing grew from, from Occupy and, and what the organizers of Occupy have been doing in the past 10 years, you know, to garner that public support. It's not like it just happened during Occupy. No, it didn't just happen. I mean, you have, so one in the very virtual realm, you know, you had like some scrappy DIY media people who to this day still are delivering um, audiences on Facebook and um, and Twitter. It's up to, it's almost 60 million people a year that we've been reaching for 10 years, which is quite a broad reach and quite a, a really powerful tool of engagement that is not, um, is not censored or managed by nonprofit organizations or politicians. Um, you know, these teams of which I work on, um, you know, we support their causes, certainly, but we're never going to be in a place where we say, no, world revolution is not necessary. We're never going to say, no, and, you know, capitalism can be friendly. No, it can't. It's destroying us. So that's like the very baseline. So building on that, you know, a year after Occupy Wall Street was squashed by the federal government, um, we had Occupy Sandy that sprung up in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, which, you know, much of the Rockaways and that coast of New York was completely destroyed. And while FEMA was handing out, you know, crackers and a phone and an ATM machine, like it was ridiculous. Um, Occupy Sandy volunteers were helping people remediate mold out of their houses. They were helping people get fresh food, hot food delivered to them. They were surveying and canvassing the areas so they could find out who needed what, if they needed medication, doctors, whatever, um, childcare. Um, they were doing that work. And out of that, you know, I think we see these, these super radical um, politicians now, especially in New York, um, state and city, um, you know, uh, we're looking, you know, we're looking at a place in a moment where we had the biggest rent protections, tenant protections ever in the past 20 or 30 years past last year, right. that wouldn't have happened without, you know, without, the messaging and the activists of Occupy moving into these other realms. I mean, 
you know, certainly electoral um, involvement was not the goal at all of Occupy Wall Street, which was started largely by anarchists. But it is a happy coincidence that it happened out of it, right? So, um, yes. I would say so. Can but can you uh, sort of break it down a little bit more? I mean, so, so Occupy, you know, said we are the ninety nine percent. The one percent have rigged the system, and uh, you know, what was? Can you talk? I guess starting on the electoral side, I mean, would you say that was something that that was amplified by the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns? Is that, is that where they they kind of like took that message to the next level and then really introduced sort of a Occupy um, critique into into mainstream politics and that other people have seized on? I don't think Bernie would have gotten to the place that he did in the presidential in his presidential run in uh, 2016 without the support of Occupy Wall Street, honestly. Um, Occupy Wall Street activists, not necessarily the movement, but, um, you know, and it helped, it changed the conversation completely because before then you wouldn't have social media being as much of an influencing part to that discussion as uh, you wouldn't have had that um support for kitchen table conversations to maybe be more open to Bernie Sanders and his campaign and what he represented without this other narrative that was popping up and being able to be delivered into people's cell phones and in their browsers and emerging conversation over kitchen tables. So. And, and while we've seen um, a lot of, you know, growth in public support of these ideas that we've just been speaking about. It's undeniable that the system that Occupy was confronting in a way has gotten worse. Oh, yes. So talk about that tension. I mean, there's more awareness, but capitalism feels more suffocating than ever. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know about the dying scream. The dying scream is the loudest one ever, right? And I would say, if anything, we're looking at a big dying scream of capitalism right now. And um, they're pulling out all the stops, aren't they? So going to take we, the rest we, of us with them? I, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. I mean, you know, you also have a huge network of mutual aid circles that have popped up in the past couple of years out of, uh, you know, a need of the crisis. I mean, what was Occupy Sandy, if not like a big mutual aid, a big mutual aid circle um, of thousands of people. And so you, you see a connection from Occupy Sandy to the, the pandemic. pandemic. Mutual oh, aid absolutely. Emerged. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because, you know, when Occupy Sandy emerged, you had this big mutual aid effort that came out, but you really understand, you know, especially the activists who are part of it, it was not sustainable the way it was set up. But these smaller neighborhood-based mutual aid circles that are popping up all over the United States, not just in New York City, um, you know, are really providing possibilities in ways that we couldn't imagine even five years ago. So, I mean, you have, um, you have mutual aid organizations like Equality for Flatbush, which has been delivering just immense resources to the communities of Flatbush, um, both groceries and non-perishable items that you need for your home. I mean, I don't know that the kind of support for something at that level would have been possible without, um, 
people's imaginations being opened up to what could be political involvement. It's the personal is the political again, right? And we have to help our neighbors before we even think about, you know, crushing these systems. We have to set up ways in which we can um, support each other before we start figuring out how to break these systems so that we can move forward. Because breaking systems is also going to make new thing, new needs emerge immediately. And um, we have to be ready to, to meet that if we're going to actually do this and figure out how to abolish policing and prisons, figure out how to move forward in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, mutual aid. It, it, that's a great point about it, you know, laying the groundwork for, for what happens next. Speaking Absolutely. Of, speaking of what happens next, um, what more groundwork do you think needs to be laid to see another uprising like Occupy? I mean, Occupy, as big as it seems, seemed, was still a very small portion of the population. You know, my daughter is 18 now and she was eight when it was happening, but she's 18 now. And you, you know, you ask kids who are 18 about Occupy Wall Street, they had no idea that it happened. Like none. Mm -hmm. Although they're doing way better I don't know that their new that Gen Z's um, uh, engagement with polit politics is quite amazing. And I'm in awe of it every day. Um, but so there's obviously, you know, there are millions of people who have no idea that that even happened, but that's on the onus of all of us who were involved in that movement and want to see, the possibilities of mutual aid of moving forward out of a capitalist system. Like, you know, that's work that we have to do every single day and making sure that there are different ways that people can plug in and connect in, in their own communities. I mean, you know, the Facebook page that I work on um, with other activists, we have an automatic response when people send messages into the page that says we're all volunteer effort. You can't reach to us. You can't reach us personally. You know, we're just here when we're here. And what you should do is find those institutions, those organizations, those groups of people in your hometown who are doing the work of what you want to see in the next version of the world and support them, give them life, put your efforts there. Right. Right. We're going to have to leave here in a minute, but do you want to uh, let people know or ways they can uh, either get in touch with some of these Occupy groups here in New York and if there's um, anything at, happening at Zuccotti Park in the coming days that's uh, worth people uh, dropping Definitely. by for? Um, the we, have, we have about 30 seconds, then we have to go. People's Puppets of Occupy Wall Street will be in the park this weekend. Everybody should show up to Zuccotti Park and, of course, Wall Street. The closing bell is at 4 o'clock, so maybe show up around 2 We'll have some fun. Okay. All right. Well, Priscilla Grimm uh, from Occupy Wall Street Journal, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And come um, to Occupy Wall ST NYC. Occupy Wall ST dot NYC is the website. Okay. All right. Great. Once again, uh, Priscilla Grimm, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. You bet. And, uh, We'll be back after this short break, and when we return, we'll be talking with uh, Amy Littlefield, who's been doing some great work on covering uh, abortion rights and, and uh, access, and uh, we're going to hear from her on that crucial struggle. But first, this short break. 
again. Looking at the mirror, making sure it's all the same. Has it been a year, making sure you understand that I'm looking here in the place where I am. Breathe. Cheers to the lone night sessions. Cheers to the time they turn to confessions. When you write your fears and hopes on the paper, music is the way I acknowledge the maker. Fortunately, it's my art. What you listen to is my heart. I probably lose heart because I shared so much. I probably lose friends because I care about my people more than cashing out stars. Peace to the ones on my side as my eagles. Peace to the ones bridging gaps of the people. Do my strength don't come from the evil. I sing songs from my heart because I. I am me from the day I started to the day I departed. With it in the end for the lessons I know. With it for the strength that I see, I hold. With it in the eye, I see deeper than the eye. Glitter in gold, not I. Wondering why. Now I really understand why. Music is still my life. Yes, it's the greatest. Now I sing high on my greatest. All my kids in my praises. Yes, it's amazing. Negativity is fading. Positive anticipation. Feeling like my joy comes in the That was I Am Me by Sampa the Great. I'm John Tarleton, and this is the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM. Here with my uh, colleague, Amba Gagarian. And uh, in a moment, we're going to turn to our second guest and talk about abortion rights and uh, everything that's happening in Texas and why it actually also matters for people here in New York as well. Um, but before we uh, do that, uh, Amba... I think we want to let people know about how they can support WBAI in this uh, radio station and keep on bringing all these great voices on the air. We need people to give what they can. You can call 212-209-2950. Yes, please give if you can. You can call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number two, WBAI.org, and every penny, dollar, ten dollars, thousand helps. We all suffer from the idea that someone else is giving, but it may have to be you today. So again, the phone number is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give the number two, WBAI.org. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate your, appreciate your listenership. Right. And when you, when you give, you can make a generous one-time donation, or you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and become eligible for all sorts of great benefits that go with that membership. But most of all, you're, help, you're helping keep this radio station on the air, the station that's uh, its signal beams 100 miles in every direction from New York out to Long Island, up into the Hudson River Valley, over to New Jersey, and, of course, all across the five boroughs. And uh, this is a station that brings unique voices, the kind of voices you're not going to hear on other radio stations uh, or television sets or pretty much anywhere else. And uh, one of those voices we're going to hear from here in a moment um, is Amy Littlefield, the abortion access correspondent for The Nation. Uh, 
formerly a producer at Democracy Now!, a longtime friend of The Independent. Uh, she's been doing great coverage, in particular recently, of the terrible legislation that uh, was approved in Texas called SB8 that pretty much eliminates uh, abortion protections for women in uh, Texas and uh, creates a bizarre system of uh, bounty hunters uh, to enforce these uh, these new statutes that a number of uh, other red states are looking to to mimic and the Supreme Court hasn't uh, done anything to stop it and uh, so we're really excited to hear from Amy about about the latest from Texas but also the the national implications of this and why uh, p- uh, people even here in a, a very liberal state like New York uh, cannot uh, rest easy and uh, Amy thank you so much for joining us on 99.5 FM it's so great to be with you, John and Amba. As you pointed out, this feels like home since I used to work as a producer at Democracy Now. I'm very familiar with that WBAI uh, fundraising number. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great to be with you. Yeah, well, we, we hope to make it a familiar number to uh, everybody that's uh, listening here on the on the station. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with uh, what's happening in Texas. Can you just quickly review uh, why this is a uh, uh, SB8 is uh, such uh, disastrous legislation as yeah. well as the, the resistance that it's, it's already uh, uh, facing, uh, especially from uh, people on the ground in Texas. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think as you point out, Texas SB8, this legislation that has gone into effect as of September 1st in Texas is really giving us a preview of both what our country is going to look like when Roe v. Wade is overhauled and and overturned by the Supreme Court, which is likely to happen imminently in in the coming months and years, um, and also debuting what the you know fierce and furious resistance to these anti-abortion attacks looks like. Um, so I can tell you, you know, I did some reporting on September first, which was the day that this law went into effect, and as you point out, the law bans abortion after fetal or embryonic cardiac activity is detected, which happens around five to seven weeks of pregnancy, which is, you know, between one and three weeks after a missed period, right? So in the earliest stages of pregnancy um, and and allows any private citizen to basically enforce a, a $10,000 bounty under uh, onto, you know, anyone who violates this law by, by helping someone get access to an abortion. Um, And what we've seen is basically uh, a mass migration of patients outside of the state of Texas, which, you know, one tenth of women of reproductive age live in the state. So, you know, the Guttmacher Institute has said basically Roe v. Wade is functionally meaningless for a tenth of of the, you know, women of reproductive age in this country. That's how big the state of Texas is. And this mass exodus from Texas is leading to huge waits, you know, waits of weeks in other other neighboring states where people are having to go to abortion clinics. So, you know, I talked to a clinic in Oklahoma where last week they told me they were booked through the end of September. So you have this cascade effect where basically abortion access all through the South is, you know, backed up. And abortion is obviously a very time sensitive, you know, need um, because it becomes riskier and more expensive the further along in a pregnancy you get. Um, and so, you know, I've had, you know, I spoke with abortion funding organizations, which if you want to learn more about the grassroots activism going on around um, 
abortion access in Texas, check out some of the abortion funds in the state, like the Lilith Fund, um, Jane's Due Process, which supports uh, minors who are seeking access to abortion in Texas. Um, and, you know, one of these um, activists the with the Lilith Fund broke down and started crying on the phone with me on September 1st. Um, she had been waiting up all night, hoping that the Supreme Court was going to stop this law before it went into effect. And that didn't happen. And so what we've seen is really a human rights crisis you know, where um, people who can afford to or who can secure, you know, the help of abortion funds um, are going as far afield as Seattle um, to get access to abortion care. Um, And people who can't um, get that help or who can't, um, you know, figure out childcare or transportation or all of the very expensive, you know, layers of need that that exists that stand between someone and abortion. In a situation like this, you know, those folks may be forced to remain pregnant against their will, or they may turn to, you know, this sort of robust underground network of extra legal medication abortion, which is, you know, alive and thriving in Texas. Um, we have this sort of remarkable situation, and I wrote an article today for the New Republic about this, where, you know, Mexico's Supreme Court last week declared that in that country, um, abortion is no longer a crime. And you have these sort of informal pill distribution networks um, that exist between Mexico and Texas. And then you have this area, you know, this vast expanding array of of options in terms of online access to medication abortion outside of our sort of legal system and outside of the reach of Texas law. And so many, many people, and we have no idea how many are are turning to those extra legal options as well, um, which, you know, potentially in in some cases can incur legal risks for for the people who are doing that. So um, that's sort of what things look like right now. And, you know, it is sort of a, a preview of of the future in a lot of ways, but also I think like, you know, abortion activists in the South would say they've been dealing with a crisis, not quite of this magnitude, but but part of this sort of dire situation um, has been building in states like Texas for a long time. And, and speaking of that, talk a little bit more about um, the inability for the surrounding states to actually handle any overflow Um when it comes to abortion clinics and backed up appointments? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen um, a drop in the number, especially of independent abortion clinics um, in recent years. Um, A a lot of those clinics have closed. You know, in Texas, about half of those clinics closed after the last round of restrictive legislation in in 2013. Um, And in surrounding states, too, it's very hard for independent abortion clinics to keep their doors open, given the, you know, raft of um, anti-choice restrictions we've seen that have made that harder and harder. Um, so we have fewer clinics, which means that they're, you know, when you have one state that that tries to choke off Texas access the way Texas is done, it creates this sort of cascade effect. And I think clinics and abortion funds and, and grassroots activists in states like New Mexico and Oklahoma uh, have really been working hard to build up as much capacity as they can to handle these patients. Um, but they're dealing with limited resources and with sort of series of successive cuts by um, anti-abortion legislators that that have hindered those efforts. Right. Now, 
the Republicans control, I think, something like 27 state governments uh, in this country. And um, is it is it true that other states are looking to mimic uh, Texas's legal strategy? Because I think the sort of the breakthrough the conservatives came up with in Texas with this bounty system, mm-hmm. which means that government officials are not enforcing their own law. It gives the the courts a way of saying, well, we can't, uh, you know, sanction the government of Texas because there's no state official who's enforcing this law. And so it seems like conservatives have come with this, you know, bizarre workaround. And uh, are other states looking to to imitate this? Oh, without a doubt. I think we've already seen Republican states say that they're going to take up legislation like this. I mean, I think at this point we're seeing, you know, anti-abortion state legislatures really throwing anything that sticks that they think might stick at the Supreme Court. Um, This law was carefully designed by, you know, Jonathan Mitchell um, and his anti-abortion allies in the Texas state legislature and Texas Right to Life to withstand a court challenge because Texas has tried before to shut down access to abortion and they've been unsuccessful because their efforts were transparently unconstitutional. Um, And this law is also transparently unconstitutional, but as you point out, because of the way they wrote it, where it works through the civil litigation system, it was very hard to um, block before it came into effect. It was sort of designed to be court proof. Um, and so without a doubt, I think we'll see other states now take this up with the goal of sort of ending access to abortion right now, you know, immediately. But the long game here is really to um, overturn Roe v. Wade and to allow states to ban um, and potentially criminalize abortion um, you know, because we no longer have the this, you know, half century old Supreme Court decision saying that they are not allowed to do that. And so that's been the long game. And we're seeing sort of the culmination of half a century of legal strategy by the Christian right aimed at um, overturning that precedent. And and in the run of this of this long game, where do more liberal or, or um, sorry, liberal states like New York, or California fall, where do we fall when it comes to risk? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, I think when people are looking for what to do, like a lot of the attention is on Texas right now, because that's where the emergency is right now. Um, but it's it's important to focus on what's going on in our own backyards and, and what's going on with our you know local politics. Um, there are, and I'm working on a story right now for the nation about this, there are a lot of efforts to advance proactive legislation to expand abortion access. And that's happened successfully in, in states like Massachusetts, where I live and in New York. Um, so paying attention to is your state legislature, you know, do you, are there still laws on the books that, you know, from before or there's still laws on the books that, you know, prevent people from having abortions later in pregnancy, for example, um, and trying to repeal some of those measures and, and expand abortion access. Um, some of the, the most innovative efforts around that have had to do with public funding of abortion. So since 1976, we've had uh, a federal policy called the Hyde Amendment in place, which bans public, bans federal funding of abortions, um, except in cases of rape or life endangerment of the pregnant person. And what that means is that Medicaid patients in most states um, don't have 
funding for abortion through their insurance. They have to pay for it. They have to raise hundreds of dollars for it out of pocket, which is prohibitive for most people. Um, New York happens to be a state where at least last I checked, Medicaid does cover abortion. And activists there with the New York Abortion Access Fund and their allies were able to get um, a measure passed to actually get public funding for for abortion um, for their efforts to you know fund abortion for people who still struggle to get access to care even with the the Medicaid policy in effect and and so you know I think paying attention to policies at the city and state level um, is very important especially because states I mean as we saw you know before Roe v Wade New York really was a destination state for people who would come from all over the country um, and fly in to if they had the means to seek legal abortion there. And so um, I think activists in New York are, are gearing up for the possibility that that's going to happen again. Right. And we'll talk a little bit more about the long game here, because uh, my sense is that the right to life people may be looking even beyond Roe versus Wade, because that's something they're on the cusp of achieving, especially now that uh, Amy Coney Barrett became the, the ninth uh, justice uh, last year after the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and um, she's super conservative, Catholic, almost the, the handmaiden uh, justice. Right. Um, uh, but the longer game, could it be, I mean, I hear some chatter in, in, in right-wing circles that the next time they have full control of Congress and the White House of trying to pass you know, fetal protection laws that would criminalize abortion anywhere in the United States, essentially uh, federalize it. So I can't I can't imagine them being like, OK, we, we prevailed in 30 Republican states and we're just going to let abortion right. continue to happen in the rest of the country. Right. Right. I mean, and I think you'll hear, you know, Republicans talk about making this a state issue and letting states do what they need to do, you know, to ban abortion. And I think that is what we're likely to see in the near term. Right. If Roe falls or is gutted beyond recognition, then about, you know, half of states are probably going to move to ban abortion. Um, and, you know, we're going to see this sort of patchwork of access which already exists, right? Care is already dependent on where you live in, in this country, and it's going to just deepen um, even more. Um, I do think there are some strands of the anti-abortion movement that want to see fetal personhood, that want to see, you know, the fetus recognized as a unique human being with rights that are on par with, you know, the person carrying it. Um, and, you know, one major question is where does criminalization of the pregnant person and where does criminalization of anyone who helps someone get an abortion, where does that fit into that picture? Because, because self-managed abortion with pills is pretty readily available, even though a lot of people don't know about it, you know, at some point if states are really intent on um, ending access to abortion, they're not going to really have an alternative besides going after people who are pregnant. And so that is sort of one theory about what the end game could look like. Um, I think it's going to depend partly on how um, the reproductive health and justice movement responds to these threats and how politically unpalatable it seems to, you know, give rights to fetuses and to criminalize people who seek abortions. Yeah, and in in, in uh, Republican America, only uh, fetuses and corporations will have rights. So, uh, <laughs> the rest of us, not so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrifying thought. Uh, also, um, just something I want to delve into a little bit: the the 
sort of the deeper forces that are animating the the anti-choice movement. And there's a lot of surface level contradictions in, in what they do because they're deeply opposed to birth control, mm-hmm. to any form of uh, sex education except abstinence uh, education. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also opposed uh, often to subsidized childcare, you know, social safety net uh, measures that would make it easier for women and families to raise the children. Right. right. Uh, they give birth to. Right. What's this, this sort of the going on here uh, with this sort of this patriarchal Christian right wing forces mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what's, what, what do you think drive drives this? Cause it certainly doesn't seem to be c- concerned for human life, given how they uh, act the rest of the time. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're sort of past the point where we should be talking about like hypocrisy, right. As if, um, you know, Republicans only care about abortion and, and, you know, this is just a, a glitch in the system that they forgot about birth control or something. I mean, I think we have to zoom out and, and the whole project makes sense if you understand that it was never about the sanctity of life, right. It was always about controlling women's place in society. Um, it was always about sort of this worldview of the, white nuclear family, you know, heterosexual (laughs) nuclear family and opposing birth control has always been part of that project. And I think the way we're seeing it emerging is, you know, conflating things like IUDs and, you know, emergency contraception with abortion, right? Like twisting the science to somehow claim that contraception is abortion. Um, And, you know, opposing the rights of, of LGBTQ people and trans people and all of the state legislation that we're seeing attacking the rights of trans people is all part of this project as well, because, you know, trans people don't exist in this, you know, landscape that, that the Christian right is imagining. Um, It's about sort of the power of, of wealthy white, you know, cis men. Um, And I think it's important to look at the fact that white supremacy has been part of the anti-abortion movement for as long as it's existed, right? Like, it's no coincidence that we see um, people wearing, you know, Make America Great Again hats who were in Washington, D.C. for the March for Life, like, you know, having run-ins with people of color outside, you know, in in the state capitol. It's no co- uh, coincidence that when we look at who was participating in the January 6th riot at the capitol, we see a lot of uh, popular, recognizable anti-abortion extremists who have, you know, been harassing people outside of abortion clinics or even firebombing them, you know. Um, there are deep connections between, um you know, racism, misogyny, and um, the anti-abortion movement in this country um, that are like not counterintuitive. <laughs> it's kind of part of the wider project. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Amy Littlefield, the abortion access correspondent for the nation, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thanks, John. You bet. Um, all right. Well, so we're going to have to uh, wrap up our uh, show for tonight. Here in a sec. Uh, I want to thank uh, my co-host, uh, Amir Gagarian. Also, uh, Nancy Hoke helped, helped us with uh, headlines. And uh, we've uh, had Reggie Johnson, our board operator, as always, a stalwart uh, helping us. And uh, once again, that phone number you can call to give, that phone number that Amy Littlefield uh, knows so well, uh, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or give number two, WBAI.org. Uh, we'll be uh, preempted next week, but we'll be back in two weeks at the same time. And uh, we'll catch you then.